This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you, organizers, for this, um, this opportunity. So, okay, I'm talking about birds, but I believe birds are closer to humans than chimpanzees. Okay? <laughs> This is white lump pneumonia. This bird has white lump here. And this is a Bengalese finch. You see, you already see this white pigmentation, the patchy pattern, okay? These guys are the same species. So through this comparative study, I would like to uh, suggest that evolution of some complexity in finches might mirror evolution of language in humans. I will do this first by taking this Tim Bergen's four question strategies. The first question is about evolution. What happened to the song when wild finches domesticated? And what happened with evolution of complexity? Let's see this again. Okay, this is a wild animal, white rumped munia. This is a domesticated version of that, a Bengalese finch. Very white patchy, and uh, looks like uh, really domesticated. I don't know why. It looks like very wild and very domesticated. <laughs> to be. Now, um, they have been domesticated for 250 years for, um, uh, for reproductive behavior. Actually, um, they were imported from China to Japan exactly 250 years ago. And since they mature in three months or so, there are about 500 generations with them. And morphology changed, I mean pigmentation, uh, plumage changed as you saw in the photo. But no record describing artificial selection for songs. And many records on selection for reproductive efficiency and white color morph. But nevertheless, songs changed very radically. So, um, this is a sonogram of Bengalese finch song. This is domesticated version of this white lump pneumonia. You see this is time and frequency, and let's hear how does it sound like. Quite complicated. Now, let's hear the white lump pneumonia song. Okay, I did it. Um, you see here, it looks like complicated, but actually it's repetition of same sequences like this. Here, looks like complicated, and it's really complicated. When I make a transition diagram, Bengali's spin song is like this. It's really complicated with many loops and many going back arrows like this. And white lump pneumonia song is basically simple linear repetition. Okay? Now, next is about development. Some differences between the wild and the domesticated fringes are due to cultural difference or different stems from innate predispositions. This is a question. 
So we did a cross-fostering experiment. We exchanged eggs from Bengalis to Munia, eggs from Munia to Bengalis like this, and we examined whether they can learn songs. The answer is Bengalis finches can basically learn Munia's songs, but Munia's have difficulty. Like in this case, uh, this is a Bengalese finch father song. It's going like something like this. And this is a Bengalese finch son song. It's similar. But this is a Munia fostered to this Bengalese finch. You see that they can do this, but they cannot do this. They can do this, right? So, the learnability is wider in Bengalese. And this is a, just a schematic diagram of this behavioral complexity and the individuals. Bengalese finches have wider range of learnability. And when they are tutored with complex songs, they can learn. When they are tutored with simple songs like white lumped munias, they can still learn. And munias have narrower learnability. When they are tutored by a simple song, they can learn. But when they are tutored by complex song, they will make it simple. So this is what's going on. Then we did this kind of multi-tutor study in which we put 10 males, 11 females, in a large flight cage. And in case of Bengalese finches, 26 out of 32 chicks Reared under this condition, learned songs from multiple two to four tutors. In case of white lumped munias, in the same setting, munias learned only from their father. This is a case of Bengalese finch. This is a second generation, and this is actually the father of this person, this guy. And this bird is learned here. But in addition to this bird, this chick learned from other guys like this one here and these ones here. So by learning from multiple tutors, Bengalese finches can make uh, multi-branch songs like this, but Munias learn only from father. Next is about the mechanisms. Uh, song differences between the wild and the domesticated finches are due partially to differences stemming from innate predispositions. Then, what kind of predispositions are these? Is a question. This is a volumetric comparison of the song control brain nuclei. These are four brain, control, uh, four brain song control nuclei in Bengalese finches and Munias. Uh, this is uh, actually the basal ganglia. This is HBC. This is a, a higher vocal center. And this is a motor uh, area to control vocalizations. You see that Munias are smaller. Bengalese are larger at HBC, RA, and area X. So the um, song-related brain nuclei are larger in Bengalese finches, domesticated strain. We also compared neurotransmitters uh, expressed in uh, several song-related areas, like uh, these are uh, several different glutamate receptors. Okay, when there are differences, it's always like Bengalese have higher expression of these plasticity-related um, transmitters. The final question is about function. 
Some differences between the wild and domesticated finches are due partially to differences stems from innate predisposition that is related with brain plasticity. Then, what caused these differences? One factor may be sexual selection. So we asked females. Females are ones they have to listen to the song and uh, decide which ones to mate. So we set up this kind of apparatus. We put a nesting material like this, and female would carry nesting materials into this nest pot. We stimulated female either by simple song or a complex song. They, these we edited based on one uh, real song. We made simple song or complex syntax song. The syllables included in simple song and the complex songs are the same. Nevertheless, uh, when stimulated by complex song, birds, female birds carried like 40 uh, nesting materials a day, every day, after two weeks or so. And they will keep carrying this much. But when stimulated with simple or comp uh, no sound at all, they did not carry as much as, as, much as the, when they are stimulated by complex ones. And body size and song duration correlate. And um, this is a principal component of body mass and size in male Bengalese finches. And this is song about duration. How long does it the song continues? So uh, this correlate. Therefore, females can guess um, whether the guy is well-made, steadily made or not by listening to the song. So by uh, mating with a guy singing complex song, female get more healthy kids. So four questions now reveal that Bengalese finches and white lumped munias are the same species, only separated for 250 years, but some complexity evolved in Bengalese finches. And Munias are narrowly focused to learn Munia songs, while Bengalese have open learnability. Bengalese finches have neuroanatomical characteristics for song complexity that are lacking in white-lumped Munias. Song complexity evolved presumably because of indirect female choice of song complexity and their relaxed, domesticated environment. Okay, so far good. Now, I'm going to focus on non-song factors, social-emotional factors of domestication in these finches. Um, birds, okay, in a bird, in a bird cage, this is a food cup, this is a water cup, okay. What we did is we put some falling object in the uh, food cup to see how long does it take for birds to come back to eat. They are very careful animals, so even by just exchanging food cup, it would take some time for munias to come to eat, but Bengalese finches comes immediately to eat. If you put novel object in the food cup, takes some time for Bengalese, but munias never came. We stopped the experiment here because they don't come. Uh, and if they don't come, they got too hungry. So, Next is measuring aggressiveness. Um, we hold a bird, then we attack the bird with this stick. 
Actually, this stick has a piezoelectric sensor to measure the force of a bite. Okay, uh, we stimulated birds five times like this. Okay, and white rump pneumonia. Out of five times, they uh, in average um, bite four times. Bengalese does bite one and a half times or so. So Munias bite more. And Bengalese are less tallest. This is about it, as you see. Um, um, this is a time of day, time of day. Okay, uh, sorry. Uh, this, is a, this is a time of day, and this is a fecal corticosterum uh, concentration. And white lamp pneumonias and Bengalese you see it's always twice as high in white lamp pneumonias. So, socio-emotional factors. Munias are more xenophobic, uh, aggressive, and stress than Bengalese finches. These factors account for some of the differences in some complexity. Neophobia, um, neophilia actually, promotes learning from multiple tutors, as you saw in Bengalese finches. Aggressiveness, more emphasis on uh, intrasex competition than on intersex selection, because aggressiveness tends to uh, result in male-male competition rather than female choice. And stress inhibits learning in general. So let's link this to human language. Relaxation and sexual selection as driving force for signal competition complexity. And we have this wild white lamp pneumonias singing simple song, more stressed, more aggressive. And uh, this is a domesticated Bengalese finches singing more complex song, larger brain nuclei, and more relaxed. And sing we have this uh, random chimpanzee here. And uh, we have Mr. Chairman here. <laughs> so, sexual speculation, human language as a product of self-domestication. Because humans have fewer predators, sexual selection for signal complexity is promoted. Because human, well, modern, I, I mean human as now, probably has lower stories than the ancient humans, that I'm not too sure, actually, but will enhance learning. And degeneration of aggressiveness uh, will lead to selection for sociable traits. And social and signal complexity will come like this, through this process. It goes to compositional use of plastic vocal tokens. So I hope I convinced you that learning about finches is more fruitful than learning about chimpanzees. <laughs> and thank you very much for uh, listening. Can I say what a thrill it is to be at what I believe is the first ever conference anywhere on self-domestication. Something that I'm sure we're going to hear much more about in the future. <clears throat> and, and, and many thanks to everybody for organizing it. So my job is to persuade you, contrary to what Dr. Okunaya thinks, that uh, actually chimpanzees can be uh, somewhat informative about <coughs> <laughs> this process and that we're not 
all basically just birds. <laughs> so the answer to the question is, yeah, I think so. I think we did. And uh, what I want to do is to avoid just giving lots of data, because lots of data has already been given by all these fantastic talks before. So I want to try and give a, a sort of a conceptual scheme. And the scheme relies on thinking about the parallel between what's happened in uh, the closest apes to ourselves, bonobos and chimpanzees, and comparing that with humans. So self-domestication, we've heard actually one or two different definitions. I think uh, most of us think that domestication is really focused on the question of the reduction of aggression, the increase of tameness. So here is the definition that I'm using, the evolution of a reduced propensity for specifically reactive aggression, losing your temper, jumping when somebody threatens you. Um, and uh, obviously it's self-domestication because it's without any other species uh, being involved. So the example here is that uh, a bonobo, which we'll talk about being a very unaggressive animal, uh, would have evolved from a common ancestor of chimpanzees and humans, and uh, that would be a process of self-domestication. Now the context I want to think about here is not just focusing on bonobos and chimps, but giving the sense that self-domestication is uh, though it is unrecognized as a principal evolutionary dynamic, should be thought of as something that is very widespread because the average species would have had ancestors that were more aggressive than it as often as it would have had species that were less aggressive than it. So we've had increases in aggression and we've had reductions in aggression and steady state of evolution, they should be roughly equal. Why would you get... Reductions in aggression? Well, here are some examples. Uh, if you have uh, smaller groups of, uh, of animals, then you tend to get uh, less uh, intense aggression by the males fighting over possession of the uh, mating rights. Um, on islands, you find that uh, there is evidence that rodents, birds, and actually reptiles uh, all tend to be less aggressive than their immediate counterparts on the mainlands. You sometimes get um, low-energy habitats associated with reductions in aggression. There are going to be all sorts of reasons, different in different cases, why aggression is reduced, but it would be a common phenomenon. And the reason that's fascinating is that when we think about the fact of domestication in the animals that we think of as characteristically reduced in aggression, then, as we have been hearing, we have a domestication syndrome. So consistently... Not always predictable exactly what happens in each animal. There is some variation which is confusing, but nevertheless, there is a consistent pattern. And as we know, much of it is unselected because that's what the wonderful experiments in Siberia have shown us. You select on tameness, you get all these other funny things happening as well. Okay. So that means that when we select against aggression, we produce the domestication syndrome. And uh, Tecumseh-Fitch has uh, given an argument for uh, what it is that is responsible for that. But the key thing I want to draw attention to here is that we have both the selected traits and the unselected traits. So what about in wild animals? We've got all these reasons for reducing aggression in wild animals. Shouldn't we again see, since we see such a consistent pattern in, in uh, the ones domesticated by humans, shouldn't we see the same combination of selected traits and unselected traits emerging? All right, so I want to uh, uh, then turn to uh, the bonobo and, uh, and think about the relationship between bonobos and chimpanzees. So these are our two closest relatives. Uh, they separated from each other something it's thought around uh, 900,000 years ago, but I'm sure these estimates will change a little bit over time. 
And uh, it is absolutely clear from every direction that you look at that there is enormously less aggression in bonobos than there is in chimpanzees. The way to actually get the most reliable information about that is to talk to somebody who is responsible for keeping bonobos or chimpanzees in captivity. Because you do not take risks with chimpanzees that you do with bonobos. You can allow two groups of bonobos to meld together and uh, be pretty comfortable that they're going to be just fine with each other. That is not the case when you allow chimps together. Uh, whether you're looking within groups or between groups, uh, whether you're looking at uh, dominance uh, status competition or actual killing, um, whether you're looking captivity or the wild, males or females, uh, you always get much more aggression in chimpanzees. And that's very striking because these two species uh, live in forests very similar to each other. They uh, are about the same body weight as each other. Uh, they're in many ways extremely similar. But there is less aggressive anatomy in bonobos, so it makes sense that uh, what we see is a psychological difference, manifest even in captivity, uh, should be reflected in other aspects of their biology. Um, and uh, this is not only in, in the shorter canines, but uh, also in feminization that very much echoes the kind of things that Bob Franciscus was talking about. And I think somebody also mentioned the fact that there's uh, now some preliminary analyses of bonobo brains showing uh, changes uh, from uh, chimpanzee brains, differences from chimpanzee brains, consistent with the reduced aggressiveness that they show. Now, what is fascinating about this is that we can look at the cranial anatomy of the bonobo and see something that is immediately reminiscent of what we see in domesticated animals because uh, we see a, a small brain, a, a small cranium, we see a shorter face, a reduced face and uh, reduced teeth. And uh, if you look at all of the living hominoids, then uh, these are the only species in which we find this. So we don't find it in chimpanzees, gorillas, or orangutans, and nor do we see it in parallel ways in the astrolopiths. So that suggests that this is derived from the pattern in hominoids. That suggests that what we're seeing in terms of the cranial anatomy is an evolutionary novelty with bonobos, and since the anatomy is so characteristically associated with reduced aggression in domesticated animals, that also suggests that the reduced aggression is evolutionarily derived in bonobos from uh, what I think we can uh, very confidently call a chimpanzee-like ancestor. So do we have a self-domestication syndrome in bonobos? Absolutely. We've got what appear to be the selected traits, the reduction in aggression, and then we also have these various unselected traits, the reduction in brain size, the uh, reduction in the face and the teeth. You see these uh, views from above of a chimpanzee skull uh, atop and the bonobo skull below. So these are really striking uh, relationships. So it means that you can have the following equation. Wolf is to dog as chimpanzee is to bonobo. And then there's a whole bunch of other traits that uh, Brian Hare and Tori Wabber and I have been systematically reviewing, and uh, in Tori's case, going out and looking for new information about, predicting that uh, just as we see pedomorphic behavior in uh, domesticated animals, so we see it in the bonobos, and indeed we do. Uh, in bonobos, you see um, the young ones spending more time close to their mothers at later ages, whether in captivity or in the wild, later offspring independence. Uh, in experiments, uh, they are more tolerant with each other uh, at later ages than they are in chimpanzees. 
there is significantly more play among the adults in bonobos than there is in chimpanzees. And uh, provocatively, uh, the bonobos show a lot of homosexuality among adults, which is now uh, being co-opted into functional um, behavior. Homosexuality is quite likely, I think, a pedomorphic behavior, because in young primates what you see is individuals uh, bouncing on um, both sexes, uh, bouncing both sexes very happily, and then they crystallize at uh, adolescence and uh, become uh, interested only in heterosexuality. So that looks like a pedomorphic trait as well. Uh, there are other traits, uh, like the white-tail tuft, um, which is, occurs in, in young chimpanzees and extended in, in later periods of uh, bonobos. And, um, and Tori Wobber showed very nicely with experiments that uh, if you look at the development of various cognitive traits, such as the ability to inhibit a response that has been learned in order to um, adapt to a new context, then uh, bonobos are, uh, take longer to... Uh, uh, learn to uh, inhibit. Oh, the pink lips is a fun one too because uh, I think this could conform to the notion that um, neural crest cells are moving more slowly and uh, not reaching the, the tips of the body in time to produce the melanocytes that will give the, the black color, as um, Tecumseh was saying. Okay, so I think we can talk about uh, bonobos as a test case of the self-domestication uh, syndrome idea. Uh, that um, there is uh, no other good explanation, much as we find with the domesticated species, uh, for many of these unselected traits are not associated with aggression. Uh, and uh, the fact that they are so parallel to what we see in domesticated animals suggests that we have the same sort of mechanism producing uh, this, this weird concatenation of, uh, of traits. I just want to just briefly mention uh, another case because it just is so fascinating to me. Um, the red colobus. Um, I work in Uganda a lot, and uh, on the right you see uh, the, the mainland form of red colobus monkey, uh, Procolobus uh, tephroscules. Um, in Zanzibar, an island off the East African coast and off Tanzania, uh, you have the Zanzibar uh, red colobus, um, and that's been separated for uh, uh, more than half a million years by current genetic estimates. And uh, as uh, often happens on islands, uh, you get hints of, of pedomorphism, you know, there's pedomorphic coloring. Look at this. The baby of the mainland colobus has pink around the lips in just the same way as occurs in the adult of uh, the Zanzibar island form. And uh, it turns out that, uh, much as you might expect, if they're following a self-domestication syndrome, there's reduced sexual dimorphism in body mass. Uh, the males are smaller. It's not the females are larger. And uh, the cranial traits are pedomorphic. And uh, here's the most amazing thing. This has not been broadly published, but Tom Strusaker has taken films of it, and it's advertised when you go to the National Park there. I was looking for signs of pedomorphism, and I, I almost fell on the floor, because at the National Park entrance, they say, guess what? This is the only species of primate we know in which the adult males will suckle from the adult females. So how much more pedomorphic can you get? <laughs> So the red colobus looks like just a fascinating case, and I suspect there are just going to be a ton of cases out there uh, for people to look at if they can find the right comparisons. And the comparison's got to be with the, the species that has lost its aggressiveness with some closely related species that is more aggressive. And island-continent comparisons 
are probably going to be a, a great one. We don't yet know about the aggressiveness of those two species, but it's an obvious prediction about um, the mainland form being more aggressive. Okay, so with the justification in hand then for the notion that there can be such a thing as a self-domestication um, dynamic that leads to a self-domestication syndrome, then you know, I love what Bob Franciscus and colleagues are doing, looking at humans and, uh, and thinking about the pattern that we see in humans compared to our um, 400,000-year uh, ancestor or whatever um, as fitting into the domestication syndrome. So uh, we've, been, we've been through this. I don't think there's any need to, uh, to go over this again. Um, but let me draw attention to a sort of fascinating little puzzle that we get to when we think about reduced aggressiveness in humans. Because on the one hand, you've got something like this, uh, a typical comment from studying people in small-scale societies. Incredibly little aggression. 17 years, not a single scuffle among the Aceh men. Okay, that's great, until you read about um, some other aspects. But uh, at that level which is uh, reactive aggression, uh, if we compare just the rates of aggressiveness in hunter-gatherer society to chimpanzees, we get something around three orders of magnitude difference. It might be more, it might be less, but, but it's, it's, you know, it's a lot. It's huge. Chimpanzees, you regularly see being aggressive. Humans but don't often see each other being uh, involved in fights within groups. But at the same time, we all know that humans are a dastardly species, full of appalling behavior, a tremendous amount of violence. So how do we square this? We have to separate out reactive aggression from proactive aggression. Reactive, the, the hot-blooded aggression, proactive, the cold-blooded, um, premeditated, uh, planned aggression that is so characteristic of what goes on uh, in uh, this context in which we, we kill people. Okay, well now... What that means is that when I compare us to chimpanzees, I like to think of us as, um, on the one hand, being Rousseauian with regard to reactive aggression, and on the other hand, uh, being Hobbesian with regard to proactive aggression. So uh, do we follow uh, these icons, Rousseau or Hobbes, uh, either neither or both, depending on which you we think? And so here's the little question I have in mind. How is it that selection simultaneously favors high tendency for proactive aggression, as bad as any other species, if you like, with a tremendously suppressed tendency for reactive aggression. Well, mechanistically, I think it's perfectly plausible. You know, we know enough about the brain to say it's reasonable to think that selection can act on these two separately because they are caused by different um, neural pathways in the brain. Closely related, but separable. Okay, so uh, then we go to think about uh, craniofacial feminization following Bob Francisco's talk, um, starting um, uh, maybe 200,000, maybe, maybe earlier. So some people want to, to say uh, early in, in Homo. And I want to suggest a very specific, simple mechanism for thinking about how this happened in humans. And uh, it may be too simple, but it sort of gets us thinking about something. And it's based on, on observations like this, which is among these wonderfully peaceful people, the harmless people, as Elizabeth Marshall Thomas called them, the Kung San of, um, of Southwest Africa. And here, here we see a, a Tui had killed three other people when the community, in a rare move of unanimity, ambushed and fatally wounded him in full daylight. People in a rare move of unanimity. They talked about it. They said, that guy, he's killed three people. He just can't be trusted. We just need to get rid of him. Let's do it. And they had formal capital punishment. 
Capital punishment was discovered about 20 years ago to be a human universal. It occurs in hunters and gatherers in all continents. It's um, uh, possible uh, because humans are able to, to use language to uh, discuss with each other that uh, there is a troublemaker in the community. And if one looks at the ethnographies, it appears as though it is uh, aggressive males that are the principal victims of capital punishment. So it's a mechanism of social control. We don't know how often it really happened because as soon as a government gets involved, uh, then people hide whether it's happening at all, and they're certainly not open about it. But the thought here is that this is an essential part of uh, the egalitarianism of small-scale society, the phenomenon of counter-dominance. As a result of language, uh, the society can get together, execute aggressors, and so you've got the execution being carried out by people who are skilled in proactive aggression. At the same time, what they're doing is getting rid of a reactive aggressor. So that's the idea, that counter-dominance is leading to selection against reactive aggression, and that this, in the kind of way that we've been hearing about in the other talks, leads to all these unselected effects. So, uh, both, well, reduced aggressive anatomy, as Bob was saying, but then uh, pedomorphic cranial growth and uh, reduced cranial size and, uh, and maybe homosexuality and some other play and learning and so on. So that's the idea. Bonobos, red carnivores, humans, many other species yet to be recognized, diverse selection pressures leading to reduced reactive aggression and self-domestication syndrome. And in particular in humans, capital punishment, allowing it to happen. Now, you know, that may be a bit exaggerated, but it is a mechanism, and uh, I think I skipped a, uh, to note that very high rates have been seen in, in New Guinea, uh, more than 15% of men dying uh, from being executed by capital punishment. And the essence of this is that language-based cooperation would have made it possible, because that's what you need to be able to effectively form a conspiracy, it would lead, as Bob says, to tolerance and cooperation, behavioral modernity, and so on. And then the tolerance would uh, somehow uh, favor again the ability to uh, develop a really effective language. So uh, that's the idea that uh, ultimately language-based cooperation would be critical in developing the kind of dynamic that is ultimately responsible for human self-domestication. So um, thanks very much, and I'd like to draw uh, specific attention to, uh, to my, my colleagues, but also to Irvin Dvor, who'd have loved this uh, conference, but he died 10 days ago. Thank you very much. Well, it's wonderful to see such an incredible audience, um, and I thank the organizers my colleagues in organizing this as well, um, uh, for making it possible to talk about such an exciting new area. Uh, my hope today is to introduce uh, some of the background problems and issues that you'll hear in the second half of the program today, mostly focused on brains, uh, because although we're interested also in all of the various features uh, that are associated with domestication, one of the things that, of course, interests us most uh, is you and I and how we behave. 
And so to some extent, uh, it's really the focus of brains that we're after. Unfortunately, brains are difficult to study, as I'm sure you all know. Uh, And we're beginning, just beginning to understand this. Although there has been uh, a considerable amount of time uh, devoted to this process of understanding uh, domestication and behavior, as you've heard. I want to begin by just sort of trying to broaden your thinking about domestication because it's going to be necessary as we move along. Uh, Domestication, as we've been hearing about it, is mostly about what people have done to animals and plants. And typically that's been the way that we've understood domestication. Today we're beginning to broaden that conception, uh, trying to understand a more broad sense of what might be called a domestic phenotype. Uh, And I want to begin by just noticing that all we're talking really about here is uh, something that's about home, about being together, about being in a, quote, non-wild context. And here's just a couple of definitions that are out there. The process whereby a population of living organisms is changed at the genetic level through generations of selective breeding to accentuate traits that ultimately benefit the interests of humans. Uh, Clearly, this is domestication as we normally understand it, or the process by which wild plants or animals become adapted to humans in the environment they provide. Again, a little bit more open, but focusing on what we've done to other creatures in the world. Or a species in which the evolutionary process has been modified in a way that makes it more suited to life in an artificial environment rather than in the wild. Uh, In other words, uh, maybe a slightly broader view uh, is to begin to think about uh, what it is for an organism to evolve such a way that it's adapted to either by virtue of action of some other organism or spontaneously itself to an unusual environment, an environment that may in fact uh, be atypical. Uh, And so the final issue is if there's something like incidental domestication and irrespective of human intervention. And it's precisely to this question that a lot of the rest of the presentations will be directed, uh, particularly about whether or not we, in a sense, exhibit features uh, that we see in other species that are domesticated. Um, Let me go back to Darwin because this is an old idea. And Darwin in many ways is prescient here. He understood a lot of the things that we've been talking about today so far. Um, He in many ways was fairly open to a lot of variety of ways of thinking about domestication because he thought of domestication as something more than just taming behavior. Uh, That I think is pretty important. Taming is obviously crucial in this story. Um, He, nevertheless, was recognizing that we normally talk about it with respect to human purposes. And that one of the things that you see in these cases is increased variability. We've seen a lot of increased variability in physical traits, in behavioral traits, and so on. Uh, And with dogs, of course, this elaborate difference in body size and body shape that's possible with domestication. Uh, The other variation that's probably equally important, and for our rest of our discussion here, uh, probably of crucial importance, is the change in behavior. That is, it's not just that animals are more tame. For the most part, there's a lot more behavioral plasticity we see in domesticated species, uh, that they're more trainable, uh, more adaptive to a variety of contexts, uh, and so on, at least, at, uh, I should say, adaptive to what you might say artificial contexts. Uh, Darwin finally saw one thing that we've focused on today as well, and I'll talk a little bit more about, and that's that in most species, and by the way, this is not universally true, and it may be one of the interesting paradoxes about our own case, is the brain size of domesticated animals is generally smaller uh, compared to their body size, and, and absolutely in many cases, uh, than other 
nearby relatives. Uh, a number of other researchers over the years have also uh, begun to focus on the question as to whether humans are self-domesticated. It has many different um, ideological linkages as well. Sometimes self-domestication is a good thing in some eyes. It's a bad thing in other eyes. Uh, Darwin says, for example, man in many respects may be compared with those animals which have long been domesticated. We might therefore expect that civilized men, who in one sense are highly domesticated, will be more prolific than wild men. In fact, he was beginning to focus also on reproduction, that domestication is oftentimes about increasing rates of reproduction. Um, We find uh, a number of other uses of it uh, in the last century. I won't go through all of these. Um, But uh, Eugen Fischer, for example, uh, was very much interested in racial characteristics. Um, In fact, there was some influence of his work on the eugenics and later Nazi activity. Um, Looking at domestication as something that we might be able to use to divide people up and analyze folks. Um, in terms of, to some extent, who was more domesticated and who was less domesticated. Um, Conrad Lawrence himself was involved in these questions uh, and, in fact, uh, was very much interested in whether or not uh, you should think about domestication as a kind of degradation or just simply a kind of variation. Um, he liked to call it cosmolitanism, um, that is, living in cities, you know, living, um, again, in homes, perhaps. What I want to do today, just to sort of open things up, to broaden your thinking, is to recognize that there are lots of possible consequences. In fact, all of these consequences, I think, are relevant. First of all, um, there can be selective breeding to enhance a desired trait. And we've certainly heard about that in many cases today already. Um, There can also be incidental selection that favors a trait, not just hitchhiking effects, but simply by virtue of moving animals or plants into unusual environments. Um, Secondary things happen all the time. Um, there can be selective breeding to eliminate an undesired trait. And certainly with the, uh, the foxes, we've seen very good indication that you can selectively eliminate a trait. Um, there can also, of course, be incidental selection that eliminates traits, uh, in which we don't actually know what's going on. People haven't done it, but it simply occurs. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on the next one. In fact, it's the one I think that is least focused on, but for my... Uh, dollar for dollar is, is one that we need to also pay attention to, not that, it's, that any of these are mutually exclusive, and that's relaxation of selection, bringing animals out of a situation where they are under serious predation pressure in which foraging is a serious problem and competition with others for food and territory is a serious problem. Uh, this relaxes natural selection, not an increase of selection, but actually allowing things to drift and vary. Each of these may be relevant, and I think they're relevant to different aspects. Um, uh, One final approach, and I like the list that came out of Jared Diamond's work of some years ago, in which he said, in order to easily domesticate a species, I'm not sure this is the whole story, but they're useful features, Um, they need to be somewhat flexible in their diet. They need to be able to sort of um, 
eat different things, not to eat the normal stuff uh, that they have for the course of a long period of their evolution. Um, He also felt that maturation rate was an important feature, in part because for human domestication, we want to be able to produce these animals as a resource as quickly and easy as possible. Therefore, there's going to be selection on some reproductive features, not just uh, behavioral features. Um, That includes the ability to breed them in captivity. In captivity, you're in an unusual environment where breeding itself may be a challenge, where animals may avoid interacting with each other sexually uh, in part simply because it's the wrong environment. Uh, uh, Non-aggressivity is an important feature, in part because it makes animals easier to handle. If animals, as we saw with the foxes, um, are constantly aggressive or frightened of people, um, then in effect, uh, it's, it's very hard to have them in association with you. And then finally, the opposite side of this, a high threshold for panic. Um, we saw that the foxes also show this incredible uh, tendency to kind of panic with respect to uh, a threat of some kind. Well, obviously, if you're an animal that also is under predation, uh, you need to be constantly alert. The question I want to ask about all of these is that in each of these, you can see all of these possibilities of selection and relaxation as a possibility. It's what makes the problem of domestication both interesting and complicated, in which one idea will probably not explain the whole story. Um, Let me focus on brains for the rest of the time, because in effect, um, not only is that my interest, uh, but it's also something that many of the subsequent speakers will be talking about. And Darwin's original claim that domestic species have, on average, smaller brains uh, than you find uh, in uh, their wild counterparts has been borne out again and again and again. There are very few exceptions to this. Interestingly enough, um, when we look more closely at the brain, it's not evenly distributed over all the parts. Uh, It's, in fact, quite different in different species, but I'll talk about just a few of the commonalities. Um, One of them is that forebrain seems to be reduced to some extent compared to the rest of the brain. Uh, That includes a variety of structures. Here, um, I just talk about the cortex with respect to the rest of the brain, Uh, but there are many other structures as well. Um, The upper parts of the brain, we call them the dorsal forebrain, uh, seem to be particularly reduced and affected in this process. Uh, This diagram, in fact, uh, shows that the, the dotted line is what you would expect Uh, if, uh, in fact, we were the same uh, in each of these creatures, the lab rat, the wild rat, gerbils, wild domesticated sheep, uh, boars and pigs and so on. Uh, The dotted line is what you'd expect if there wasn't much of a change. The upper line basically says that brain size uh, in these species, in the domestics, uh, cortical size is smaller than you'd expect for the absolute brain size. Uh, That, in effect, there's parts of the brain that are being selectively affected. Uh, This is a list. I don't expect you to jump through this. I'm going to just sort of focus on a couple of things and follow it up very quickly. Uh, This is a list uh, by a man who's spent much of his career trying to divide up different parts of the brain and identify which have been reduced, which have been expanded, which have stayed the same uh, during domestication processes. And the numbers you see here, I'm not going to go through any of these in any great detail. Um, It's a negative number in almost all cases. And that's because this is the percent reduction 
on average, from an animal whose brain size, uh, corrected for brain size, by the way, but percent reduction with respect to what you'd expect in terms of the size of various structures. Uh, I'm going to focus a little bit on the top one and the bottom two, olfactory structures, smell structures, uh, the olfactory bulbs, for example, that we use for smell. Um, and you can see that 25%, 31%, 22%, 33% reduction, really a significant reduction across the board. We find this almost universal. And by the way, uh, as you see, it's also true for domestic dogs. We think of domestic dogs as having great senses of smell, but in fact, they're also subject to significant olfactory reduction, which is quite a surprise. So of these structures, what's interesting about them is that they're often involved in the production of automatic behaviors of various kinds, uh, particularly aggressive behaviors and social and sexual behaviors. Uh, olfaction, for example, smell for mammals is a crucial uh, part of the process of identifying uh, friends, foes, breeding partners, uh, offspring, and, and parents, and so forth. Um, so to have these structures significantly reduced is an interesting problem. Uh, most people now believe that, in fact, that reduction has to do with the fact that during domestication, um, what we human beings, domesticating animals, so to speak, don't want is we don't want the animals to make these decisions themselves, uh, to get in the way of our own decisions. And so, in fact, selectively selecting against the capacity to do good olfactory discrimination could actually be an advantage for controlling breeding. What that means effectively um, is that it will also probably change the way that aggressive behavior is engaged in simply by virtue of decreasing the capacity to distinguish friends and foes, um, uh, females that are in heat or not in heat, so on and so forth. Doesn't mean it can't be done, but in effect, you might say the automatic effects are going to be reduced. Uh, and, in fact, what we expect to find under those circumstances uh, is that these are going to be animals easier to control and manipulate uh, domesticatively. Um, the point I want to make about this, however, and this is why selection can be quite rapid, not the kind of thing we see in evolution over millions of years, for example. Uh, why? Because to damage a structure doesn't necessarily take a lot of effort, so to speak. And I don't mean actively damaging it. I simply mean selecting for animals that do a poorer job of discriminating this way in one way or another. That can happen automatically. And as a result, mutations can accumulate spontaneously. Um, so one, in selecting against something, uh, actively or passively, uh, it allows errors to accumulate more rapidly. You don't have to necessarily select um, for something to be eliminated as simply uh, to not select against uh, their elimination because noise will step in anyway. Interestingly enough, um, it's not just the olfactory structures, as I mentioned, that are reduced. Uh, this is a summary of just one study of many, many, um, looking at different cortical areas. Uh, the percentages here on the right are, again, reduction with respect to uh, the wild variant. And you can see that in the front part of the brain, the red and orange areas, motor areas, are reduced. In fact, they're most reduced in the domestic mink. Um, uh, on the other hand, visual areas are slightly reduced. Uh, we find this varies a lot across species, whether it's the visual system that's been degraded or the motor system that's been degraded. Probably the most significant and drastic one associated with you and I um, is olfaction. 
um, we now know that human beings um, have the most reduced of land mammals, the most reduced olfactory genes. Um, By olfactory genes, it turns out that smell is a very complex process genetically. It takes, on average, for typical mammals, somewhere in the range of 1,500 distinct genes for olfactory receptors. Not that they don't just necessarily sense a particular odor. Their combinatorial activity is what probably does that. But nevertheless, as you decrease the variety of olfactory genes, um, obviously the selectivity of smell goes way, way down. Uh, And you'll see from this figure here uh, that, in fact, uh, humans uh, have a significant reduction. We've lost about half of them. They've become pseudogenes. In fact, this includes all of the genes that are involved in what's been called the accessory olfactory tract, uh, which is a tract that's critical for for smelling, so to speak, pheromones. This is not something that only we've been involved in. You can see that old world monkeys and apes have also had some reduction. Finally, what I want to jump to here is the fact that damage can occur in lots of ways. And variety can occur in lots of ways. And one of the recent studies that's come out just very recently about a species that has been actively selected by human beings is looking at rabbits. Rabbits, of course, raised for a whole variety of reasons, including food, but also just cuteness or interesting shape and so on. Turns out that rabbit domestication has been associated with a wide variety of gene changes um, that's quite varied across the entire range. Lots of pseudogenicity, lots of other changes. Interestingly enough, something that's characteristic of rabbits and ourselves um, uh, is that a lot of the changes, particularly the changes that you might say are damaging or our loss of function effects uh, involve genes that actually regulate other genes. And regulating processes may in fact change development in a variety of ways, including development uh, of the brain. Let me just end by jumping way back to the precursors of HOMO, uh, the Australopithecines. Um, There's many ways in which they have a lot of traits that we would expect to have been domesticated away. Um, uh, Males uh, had massive faces, highly prognathic faces. Uh, They had brains about the size of of today's apes. Um, Although they had reduced canines, it was probably for dietary issues, they had remarkably high sexual dimorphism in which males were very large compared to females, suggesting that social behavior uh, in the Australopithecines was very much a polygynous behavior in which males were physically competing for females. That disappears almost to modern levels within um, uh, just about a half million years from the discovery of stone tools. Uh, One of the possibilities is that the very process of domestication has gone on multiple times in multiple ways. And probably the beginning of it has to do with changing our ecology so that we were now able to survive on a very different food source uh, that changed our social behavior in a whole variety of ways including brains that have enlarged, faces that have reduced, um, and sexual dimorphism that has also reduced. That has continued on into the present. There have probably been many waves using many different mechanisms to accomplish this end. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.